I have a really serious topic we're going to talk about today. And I just called it, we can't lose the next generation. We can't lose the next generation. You know that according to stats, somewhere between 85 to 95 percent of Christians find Christ before the age of 20. Before the age of 20. That makes our kids' ministry and our youth ministry of absolute importance in our church. It makes what goes on in your home of absolute importance because that is where the bulk of Christianity makes a decision for Christ. I'm going to start reading in Joshua chapter 2. It says, And the people served Jehovah all the days of Joshua. Joshua was a leader after Moses. Moses was an amazing leader. He wasn't able to take the children of Israel into the promised land, but God raised up Joshua, and Joshua took him in. So it says, In all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen the great work of God that he had wrought for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Jehovah, died, being a hundred and ten. They buried him in the borders of his inheritance in timnath Hares, in the hill country of Ephraim, on the north of the mountain of Gosh. And also all his generation died and were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know God, nor yet the work of God which he had done in Israel. Joshua was a great fighter. He was one lousy father. You can accomplish great things with a leadership skill. Lose your family. You can lose your generations. I want to talk about this from a different a number of perspectives. Joshua took the fighters, the warriors. He gave them a sense of conquering. Let's go in. Let's take the promised land. And they did. Now, they, he didn't finish his job. If you study the word of God, you'll find that all of Canaan wasn't set free from the races of giants that were there. But when they got old, and all of the heroes in Joshua's generation got old and died, the next generation didn't serve God. I want you to know something. Satan's crazy, but he's not stupid. He's evil, and he hates children. Study the Bible. When Moses was born, and the king realized that God's people were getting very prosperous and very plenteous, killed every all the males under two years of age. Disgusting. When the king found out that Jesus was going to be born or that he was born and he didn't know exactly where, when, or how, he thought, well, just kill every baby boy again under the age of two. If you study history in the Bible, you'll find that pretty much every god, every idol that the different countries would serve 
they would sacrifice their children to the gods. Graveyards and graveyards and all over the world they find when they unearth idols, Baal and Ashtaroth and Moloch, whatever they called them in every generation. They were just evil spirits that encouraged them to do sick things. Satan's not changed. He's after your kids. Well, you're scaring me. Good. Because we need to understand the most precious thing you've got is not your house. The most precious thing you've got is not your business. It's not your career. It's the generation of kids that are going to outlive you. And so we need to understand that this is tragic. This is brutal. As you study the Bible and you follow up after Joshua and the things that took place, it's horrid. So, I'm just going to tell you off the top, Joshua was a great fighter. He was great at a number of things, but he did not uh, lead his kids. He did not uh, think about family and all the other wars. So what were they doing when they should have been being daddies? Oh, they're, they're out probably just hanging out with the other warriors, sitting around the campfire, you know, bragging about all their great exploits, rather than equipping the kids and the families to rise up and to be strong and to have purpose and to love God and to, and to figure out what's worth fighting for in life. And they end up instead just getting back into sin. I've been preaching from behind the pulpit for over 40 years had a chance to watch the Church of Jesus Christ. There's a difference between first-generation Christians and second-generation Christians. First-generation Christians usually came out of some form of sin that was destroying them. Whether it was sexual or alcohol or drugs, money, whether it was whatever it was that hurt them and broke them, and made them turn to Christ. I've noticed in first-generation Christians this abhorrence of sin, this looking at sin and just going, not a chance. My mom was raised by an alcoholic dad who left them, abandoned them, beat them, beat her mom, left when she was eight years old. He did. You couldn't get her near her a party of alcohol for love nor money. You couldn't convince her to play around with things anywhere. It, 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 just, it, it was just disgusting to her. So first generation Christians come out of sin. They come out of emptiness, depression. You just pick whatever brought heartache and brokenness. But now here's the thing about second generation kids. Second generation Christians are born into a Christian home. And they shouldn't see all the horrid things that went on uh, in their parents' lives. They should be born into a Christian home where they are valued and loved and taught the word and brought to church and uh, protected, uh, spoken into as to who they are. But the interesting thing about second-generation Christians is they have never experienced the horrors of sin. So when you say sin, they'll say, they'll, it'll be like this. Oh, you just don't want me to have any fun. Hear it all the time. And so if you don't deal with this, the second generation of Christians end up playing as close to the edge as they can because they don't know its horrors.
They don't know how it destroys marriages and homes, your emotions, how it destroys and breaks hearts, relationships. They're like, they'll just play with it. And then they go to the Bible to find out, well, what is sin and what's not sin? Give me the list of things I can do, can't do. What, what, what is it? And they don't recognize that that's not the issue. The issue is who's got your heart and what are you living for? And so second generation Christians often have no zap, no rise up with purpose, no get up with something that, that just, man, it makes their blood pump and the adventure of advancing the kingdom of God. And so it's crucial that first generation Christians teach their kids the horrors of sin. He asked my kids, it bugged them all the time, but when they were younger and they were in our home, when we would go home from church, I would always drive down to the worst parts of town, and I'd go home that way. And we'd be driving by, you know, down some areas of Main Street, and we'd see people drunk staggering into traffic or ambulances and fire trucks picking them up. We'd, we'd see people bashing and fighting, blood everywhere. We'd drive by certain streets, and in the middle of winter, there'd be a little kid in a diaper all by himself running around. Mom's just uh, passed out. And my kids would often say to me, why do you always do this? Like, why do, you, why do we have to drive past here? I don't know how you'd explain it to them, but I just, you know what? I want you to understand how blessed you are. I want you to understand how good God is. I want you to understand there's another kingdom on this planet, and you better recognize that the wages of sin is death. The purpose of, of God to say, don't do these things, wasn't because it miffs him. It's because it kills you. He, want, he loves you. He wants you to have great marriages, healthy bodies, sound minds. He said, don't do these things. And, uh, and so you need to understand that the enemy, he'll just coax you a little bit at a time. And ah, did God really say? Do you think God really meant? Does God just want to stop all your fun, etc.? And so one of the things I want to share with you today is make sure that you don't just passionately look at the things of God but that you teach them there's an enemy and that this enemy will try to woo you into some area where you begin to compromise an area of your life. Now, when you take a look at the next generation, everyone's talking about their legacy. I want to leave a legacy. And usually it means, can I have a hospital wing with my name on it? Uh, can you put a statue in the church parking lot? Uh, you know, with my name on it. Listen, legacy, that's not what legacy is. Inheritance is the stuff you leave behind. Legacy is the people that you leave behind, that you equip and love and train and take the, the, the things that are important and crucial to you and rise up and go do them. And so don't get it mixed up. We want to make sure that, that the heritage of the Lord is the, is the training, the loving, the equipping, because the devil is after our kids right now. You've got to be naive to not look at what's going on in the school system, the public school system, province by province, and what is taking place and go, what in the world? Well, it doesn't matter who the leader is behind it all. The enemy's after your kids. Well, I don't believe that. He's never stopped. Take a look at the universities. 
I mean, they are socialistic centers that laugh at Christianity. Everybody is so concerned about, you know, protecting different people and making sure that prejudice is, is re returned. I, I got news for you. That's laughable. There is one group of people that no one will ever correct you if you come against them, if you make fun of them, if you lie about them, belittle them, and that's Christians. You can't take on even another denominate. You can't take on another religion. You'll be shut down. But any newspaper, anywhere, you can take on any Christianity as much as you want. They'll lie about it. They'll lie about everything. And so we need to make sure that in our churches, in our families, in our homes, that we understand that until you get to heaven on this planet, there are two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness, and it is coming for every person it can, and the kingdom of light, Jesus. And we need to reach everyone we can because eternity is real. There is a heaven and there is a hell, contrary to a few popular preachers who just can't find hell in the Bible. I don't know where they're reading. Uh, we've got to understand eternity is forever. And so we have a mandate to advance the kingdom of God. Joshua, he missed the boat. But now there are other leaders in the Bible that did amazing things. And when you take a look at it, it's stunning. Like, David is interesting. When you take a look at David in the Word of God and, and you see how he rose up and how many times it talks about generations and generations. And when you study his life, his first part of his life was pretty lousy too when it came to being a father. But something happened in him somewhere and, and, and he began to change and he began to talk about the future and he began to stockpile for the future. There's an interesting verse. Let me just find it here. Well, I'll read the scripture when I get to Let's keep going. Time keeps ticking by on me. When you take a look at David, David was a man who wanted to build God's house, the temple. And God told him, no, there'll be a son that you'll have and he'll build your temple. And so when Solomon, who's who it was, uh, was young, he says, Solomon is tender and inexperienced. I will provide for the house of God. And as you begin to read, David trained Solomon. Bathsheba trained Solomon. They talked to him about a lot of stuff. From everything that had to do with sexuality, to do with alcohol, to do with handling people, to being just, to being a leader, to being a ruler. The teaching that went into this man was stunning. And the amount of money that David stockpiled, it, you just shake your head. And I'll, I'll give you this portion of scripture a little later. That as you begin to see, we know Solomon was wealthy. We know he was wise. And eventually he went off the rails. But all of this wealth originated with David. David stockpiled, and you ought to see all the different things he stockpiled. And he charged his son. He said to him, this is for the house of God. You will build the house of God. And here's how you'll be. And here's what you'll think. You know, today, it's kind of funny. Uh, you know, over the years, I've watched families and in and, 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 and this a generation build a great business. Raise it up worth financial, just blessed. And, and then just will it over to their, the next generation. And in no time, about two generations, it's finished and it's gone. Well, you may as well make a decision that my life, 
I want to leave a legacy for the kingdom of God, which is the people that I influenced. But I want to also leave an inheritance, not just to people who won't look after the things I loved, the house of God, the purpose that I lived for. I'm going to challenge you. When you start making your wills and stuff, take a look at all the wealth you've accumulated. Ask yourself, okay, yes, I'm looking after my kids. That's biblical. But now, what about what, what I laid my entire life down for, the church of Jesus Christ, getting the gospel across this nation, making sure that Jesus is glorified on television and from country after country and language after language. Don't just allow, well, I, know, I guess I have to do this. No, you don't. Everything that is in your hands is yours to pray about and to use with wisdom and say, I need to train and equip my kids to handle what I'm about to hand them. And I want to make sure that the things that were important to my life, that I'm able to take a part of that and bless the call of God. Joshua's generation. What a mess that was. When you take a look at, at being fathers and being mothers, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, the Apostle Paul speaking, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. I urge you, be imitators of me. Now, why would Paul say that? Well, first of all, Corinthians, you have to understand the city of Corinth. You know, back then they say that Caesar... You know, Corinth was empty. It was a city that got destroyed, and he was an important trading route, and so he wanted it brought back as a great city, and no one would go to it. So Caesar just gave land for free to those who would go there. And so you can imagine every pickpocket and liar and cheat and thief all headed to Corinth, and Corinth was just this crazy city. So when the gospel came to Corinth and people began to be saved, they were their moms could have been the temple prostitutes. It could have been a dad who had killed one of his brothers because fathers could kill any kid they wanted or their wife, and, get, and that was fine. Uh, in those days. And so there was no uh, real father figure that would help them. And so Paul said, he didn't, he didn't say, well, okay, remember, watch your dad, because that's where you're going to learn the things of God. Well, their dad could have been one of the most murderous, raping, pillaging people with an, serving an idol. So he just said, okay, follow me as I follow Christ. What he told them, imitate me, because he didn't know where else to turn them. There was generations of no fathers. You can look at a 70-year-old man and say, well, you know, he sure missed it as a father. He didn't have a father. And his father didn't have a father that knew the things of God. What do we do? We are the church of Jesus Christ. And as people come and give their lives to Christ, it is still that way. There'll be generations of people who don't know what it is to be believed in, to be loved, to, to, to be mentored and shown to know what morals are, what integrity is. And kids don't do what you teach. They become who you are. And so you can think you fulfill something, but we've got to live our lives with a passion for Jesus, a passion for the house of God. You know, Jesus said, I, what am I doing? I'm building my church. Therefore, we need to recognize the church isn't a physical building. It's the people. They are the salt and light to every nation, to this planet. And so we've got to raise up a generation who knows who they are. And the best way to do that is to be that. And as you be that, you can change 
generations of your family tree. The Bible says if you'll do this thing God's way, to the thousandth generation, the favor and the blessing of God will, will be upon you. You see, there's a lot of talk about generational curses and uh, where they believe that Satan has a right to your family with certain curses, whether it's alcoholism or suicide. Um, and, and so they think Satan's had the right. Now, there is no way he has the right. Jesus, when he died on the cross, destroyed his rights and privileges in any sense, took away his power. However, you'll notice that if families don't change how they live, you can mentor things into your family. And so a family can play with something and not deal with it. And it just goes on down and down. I've got friends, quite a few of them, who came from alcoholic homes, for example, who abhorred it, hated it, wouldn't touch it. In fact, growing up with me, they wouldn't even have a drink. They said, not a chance. Uh, if, you know, if, one in, if one in four children have a predisposition to alcoholism, I'm not even going to mess with it. And then at a certain time in their life, when the stress is there and things are going bad, I watch them just turn straight into the very thing they abhorred because they've been trained in that. They've been mentored in that. That's what they had seen and saw. And so it's crucial for us to dive into God's Word, to renew our minds, to put off the old, to put on the new as a child of God and make sure that the next generation can imitate us. And it doesn't mean exactly everything I say. It doesn't mean we have to all be clones. It means who do we look to? In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, Timothy had an amazing head start. Paul knew it. Here's what he says about him. Timothy, you've got the faith of your grandmother and the faith of your mother. How do you get faith? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How would a grandmother get that into her grandson? By teaching him the word, by being an example of speaking to mountains and pulling down situations and standing strong in the midst of battle. And his mother as well. And so when Paul came along and raised young Timothy up to be one of his amazing leaders, he saw the work, had, a lot of this work had been done. You see, it's not the church's job to train your kids. Kids. It's not the school's job to train your kids. It's parents' job to train the kids. And then if you can get a good school to get an agreement with you, fantastic. If you're in a great church that's got great kids' programs, fantastic. But the 30 minutes your child got taught in Sunday school can't compare to the 170 hours or so that they're with you. And so let's rise up and let's passionately serve Jesus. Let's love God's house so that they love God's house. Let's worship so that they worship. Let's give so they give. I think one of the smartest things a parent can do is, yes, we've got incredible kids' ministries, incredible youth ministry, and so they need to be in there and to be a part of it. But I think maybe once a month, at a certain age, pick them up and bring them into church with you, with the adults. Why? They need to see mom worship God. They need to see their dad, who they respect or in awe, stand there with his hands in the air and declare, God is my God. They need to look around with their little eyes in the building and see a host of strong, tough men worship the King of Kings. They need to see a whole auditorium of beautiful women and grandmas and, and, and just praising Him and go, and it just comes in these eye gates and in these ear gates. And they go, this is what I'm going to do. 
I love going by our classes, seeing these little three-year-old, they're, they're worshiping God, and they got their hands in the air, and they're rocking back and forth, and they're worshiping God. I want to stand there and just weep as I see them. As it, it's crucial to us to understand that we must, one generation must teach the next generation, not just the Word of God, but they also must teach the great things they did in your family. You see, it's crucial for you, if you want the next generation to serve Christ, to share what He did in your life. Well, Lynn, I don't have that many miracles. Yes, you do. You can sit down and think a little bit. What would you have been like without the Word of God, the Church of God, without the pastor you had, all the friends around you, you know, and, and being to talk about, go back another generation to grandpa and grandma and great grandpa and grandma, know your history a little bit. It was crucial to God that every time he did a miracle for the Israelites, they would build an altar of rocks so that when they walked by it, it would remind them of the miracles and the things that God did for them. We need to make sure that the next generation serves God. Take a look at Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, verse 18. Ever wonder why Abraham was chosen? I mean, three religions on the globe trace their religion back to Abraham. What about Abraham? Why did God pick Abraham, father of faith? Listen to this. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I've chosen him, he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. How is he going to bring it about? With each generation serving God. Abraham was picked because he would teach his children. What? He was picked because he would be a father. He would rise up and he would instruct them in the ways of God. And he would have a passion for God that would transfer to them. David had a passion for God and a passion for the next generation. He says in Psalms twenty-two thirty, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. For he has done it. Psalms 45, 17, I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. The way we reach the nations around this planet is by preparing our kids and equipping our kids. Every generation, every emerging generation, spending money, buildings, lands, parents, churches, making sure how they're schooled, how they're taught, though not allowing things to creep in that that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, the Bible says. Who's teaching them? Who's hanging with them? Who are their friends? you got to make decisions as a parent. Well, you know, she just doesn't want to come to church. Oh, do you give her that choice for school? Just a lot of things to think through. David had a passion for the next generation. There's verses and verses and verses about making sure the next generation knows God. And my challenge to you today is this. We'll finish up some of this in another message. That what are you thinking through? Like, is your career really that important? What's the purpose of your career? Is there a purpose for your career? Is there a purpose for your money? Or is it just to make as much as you can to really spoil and wreck your next generation? Are they going to have a purpose? 
When you go through the word where David stockpiled incredible wealth and he gave it to his son on his death, he commanded him, you will use this for the things of God. He wasn't allowed to go fritter it away, just blow it on bigger yachts and, and all the things. He Just think of a way to blow it all. No, there was a sense of, uh, of heritage. Uh, there was a sense of legacy. There was a sense of the, the kingdom of God must advance. It's going to advance in my lifetime, and it's going to advance after my death. How are we going to do that? By leaving a legacy, which is the people we love and train and equip and spend time with and influence. And it's going to be because of the inheritance that I leave that's going to look after family and church and God and the future. Let's, let's recognize some of these things. Because it, I told you I'd give you the verse. If you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, uh, that is where you will find all that David left. It says here, this is pretty interesting. And David said to the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom God has chosen, is yet tender and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the palace is not to be for man, but for God. He wanted to build God's house. He said, I've provided with all my might for the house of God, the gold for things to be out of gold, silver, iron, wood, onyx, Burl, stones of antimony, stones of various colors, stones of precious stones, marble. And it goes on to talk about his passion. Verse 4, 3,000 talents of gold of Ophir, 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house. Gold for the uses of gold, silver by the uses of silver, and every work to be done by craftsmen. He just goes on talking about all this stuff, and it just goes on and on. And I mean, I actually never knew until a little while ago, because I hadn't thought about it this way. I just thought Solomon was the guy that had built such wealth. Then I found out David had pursued wealth with a purpose. I want to challenge you. If you've been given an ability, and everybody has, to have influence in any area, whether it's medicine, whether it's arts, entertainment, education, whether it's business, wherever you have influence and resource, recognize that it's, it's not yours. It's God. You gave yourself to him. Make sure that you think through generationally what's the greatest impact that you can leave. There's no hope for this world without the church. The book of Ephesians says very clearly that the church is not about the world, meaning the world's in charge, but that the world is, that the church, the world is subject to the church. Did you know that when the church day is done here, the world is done? doesn't matter how you believe about end times. When the church of Jesus Christ, we come to an end for the church age, this age of Christ, Jesus comes, it is finished. <laughs> the only hope this world has is the church. And so the church isn't about how many people we can pack into one room to worship God. I like that because we want more and more and more. No, it's how they go out into the streets and share, and love, and minister to people. We're going to need a great big sign on every exit on Springs here that just says, you are now entering your mission field. People, they celebrate because they can pack 30,000 people in for a worship and praise concert. I'm fine with that. They, they, they get excited because 100,000 men will attend a, a men's conference. And, and these are actually real numbers in real places. And I love that too. If... 
when they leave that building and all that we do within this building, that we go out and we are salt and light. We boldly declare the, 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 the gospel of Jesus Christ. We stand for righteousness. Because other than that, we're just a subculture tucked away in our own auditoriums doing something the world knows nothing of, and it has no influence on the world. Not on healthcare, not on government, not on education, not arts entertainment, not even the church. So this is why that we must understand this next generation. We have to pour our lives into it as parents and grandparents. Hey, if a grandparent can determine the faith of Timothy, and you can too. And I'll say this to those of you who feel like you've really messed up. I talk to a lot of parents who will say, you know, I heard your message and I just feel so condemned. Why? Because I have failed my family. And the Bible says there are two kinds of sorrow. Godly sorrow will lead to you rising up with faith and doing something. But it says ungodly sorrow. The world's sorrow just leads to death. Just regrets and you give up. I was talking to, one of the things I share with people a lot is I'll say, you know, well, my kids aren't serving Jesus, okay? So I don't know what I did wrong. Well, you can sit around looking at all the problems, and if we go through your life, we'll find some problems. If we go through my life, we're going to find some problems. So what do I do? Do I sit around now and just, you know, live in my regrets? No, get up and do things now. Get up and love and reach out and help out with all that you can. They'll say to me, well, you know, the Bible promises us our kids will serve Jesus if we raise them. I said, oh, I get it, but their life's not over yet. They're coming back. The Bible promises that in the book of Malachi. They'll return to the lands of their fathers. But here's an interesting thought. If perfect parenting produces perfect kids, what the heck happened to God? He had two kids that he walked and talked with in the cool of the day. And he taught them principles and he taught them who they were. He gave them commands. He loved them. He shared. And they both left him to go serve the devil. There. We just take the guilt away from every parent and grandparent out there and recognize you're not perfect. And I'm not perfect. And I always pray, God, you be the God to the fatherless areas of my kids. Because none of us are perfect, and I don't know exactly what I'm raising. God does, so I train them the best I know how. Teach them to look to Jesus as the author and the finisher of their faith, and let Him. And if they'll have a great relationship with Him, then the future will be bright. Because when I'm dead and gone, and I do not want to outlive my kids. I want to die before them all, and make sure that they go on into the, the years and decades ahead, greater, better, further. And that's what we want to believe as a church for our children and our kids' ministry and our teen, teens' ministries. And as things change and new technology comes in, don't be so like standoffish for new technology. You know, just because the devil jumps on everything and uses it doesn't mean we can't take it and redeem it. Whether it's Oh, I don't breathe TV screens. Those are the devil's tool. No, a tool is a tool. A surgeon uses a knife to save lives. A gangster kills with it. It's just a tool. A friend of mine had a guy from the world who had made all this money in evil ways. He said, do you mind if I, I'd like to give you this much money. And some of the board said to him, 
They said, you know, we shouldn't touch that money. That is blood money. That is evil money. He goes, it's just a tool and we'll redeem it. Take it. I'll go win souls with it. And so, <laughs> so my, my, my heart is today is to don't ever forget that the future and all that we've worked for in impacting our nation, our cities for Christ, it's all going to disappear if we don't prepare the next generation. Father, I pray today that you'd guide us, lead us. That, Father, as a church, we would reach this generation for you, and we would prepare for every emerging generation ahead. That, Father, we would give, we would laugh, we would love. We would be an example of living life to the fullest because of Jesus. And Father, you'll guide us everything ahead. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.